the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Hello, everyone. So, Lindsay, last episode, we wrapped up our five-year anniversary, and we did a really lighthearted vacation film, summer film, but then uh, we like themes <laughs> around here, and we haven't done one in a while, so we chose to do a serial killer summer. So, for this episode and the next episode for August, we're going to be doing all serial killer movies. Um, we're featuring seven in this episode, next uh, episode, we'll feature American Psycho. All of our picks of the week will be serial killer movies. And to top it all off, uh, we got um, our serial killer summer kick started last night. You and I attended a psychology of serial killers seminar. Would you call it a seminar? Yeah, a, a talk. And yeah. a, and what fascinates us as a culture, as yeah. an American culture with... Um, with serial killers. And so we'll 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 touch on that a little bit. We don't want to go full true crime podcast, even though sometimes we dip a little pinky toe into that territory, but I think it's hand in hand when we're doing serial killer movies. So we'll probably reference that a little bit and I was sitting of, next to you last night being like, That's John Doe. That's yeah, John Doe. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, and shut up. It was really good it was a good way to like kind of like delve into seven. Yeah. You know, and um coincidentally one of the movies that I picked for my pick of the week uh, Summer Sam, the criminologist that spoke last night, one of the main serial killers he talked about was uh, the son of Sam. So I was like, all right, got a little extra information for my pick of the week. And what did you do for your pick of the week? I'm always going to be a sucker for 90s thrillers and um, give me some Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd anytime. So I did Kiss the Girls. Okay, Kiss the Girls. That's mm-hmm. a good one. It is a really good one. I almost feel too like Seven kicked off this sort of Morgan Freeman doing serial killer movies. And then there was a slew of like serial killer type movies that came out after the success of Seven. But let's focus on Seven a little bit. Um, I can't wait to get into this. There's so much to talk about with this movie. It's also the first time we've done a David Fincher movie, which surprises me. We've been around five years. Yeah, I think the only time we've really talked about him was uh, when we did Aliens and we, we talked about Alien 3. Yeah. And, you know, there are some Fincher naysayers, I think, that, like, Alien 3 left this, like, bad taste in their mouth for David Fincher. Um, I won't spend this entire podcast defending Fincher, or I'll try not to, but I just want to put it out right in the beginning of this episode that David Fincher, like, sort of, like, disowned Alien 3. I mean, the studio got involved, and he kind of, like, swore off, like, I'm not going to do any Hollywood movies anymore. I mean, he had an insanely successful career in his 20s as a music video director, just to name a few, Vogue by Madonna, Express Yourself by Madonna, uh, Aerosmith's Janie Got a Gun. And if you go back and watch those music videos, you'll kind of see that early dark style that Fincher has put into so many of his other films. And we'll get into that. We'll talk about Fincher's career a little bit in this episode, and we'll talk about you know, the style of seven, how this movie came to be and how the studio did try to get involved with this movie in a negative way, the same way that they did with Alien 3. But Fincher had learned his lesson and, you know, really kind of put his foot down and 
other actors came in to support Fincher in certain decisions of not omitting things in this film. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about it. Of course, we'll hit on, I hope we get to talking about some themes, some aspects to this story. This being a kind of a buddy cop movie in a way, uh, definitely a detective genre film, but how it strays, you know, strays away from those typical conventions in a lot of ways that we're used to. Um, of course, we'll get into the casting. I love the story of, of how this movie test screened it's pretty hilarious so we'll get to that in discussion too and also i mean we got to talk about the ending if there's one thing you remember about this movie you definitely remember the ending yeah this was uh, the 90s i felt was a real big decade for surprise slash shocking endings you know we had uh, this movie the crying game sixth sense uh there was really like this uh sort of like want to shock an audience and like really like get people like talking about a movie, like leaving the theater and and like, can you believe that just happened? You know, I can't believe this movie went there. I I don't know that that's possible nowadays because (laughs) things, you know, uh, uh, I mean, we're already getting negative reviews for movies that, or positive reviews for a movie that don't come out for like another month, you know, because of the internet and, so many film sites, but I think um, the only ending that that got me, and I did not know how it was going to come back, was the ending of Promising Young Woman. I didn't know how that was going to come back around and end up being okay for yeah. something no, terrible that's a good, that happens. That's a good call. That's a very good call. Um, that one did uh, kind of get by without people like kind of spoiling the ending. Yeah, it's really hard to like quantify like how shocking of a movie this was when it came out in 1995. I mean, this there really weren't that many movies that were going in such a bleak, dark no, fashion. Not at all. But also, at the same time, taking us into this world that's so, like, grim, but at the same time having characters that are, like, equally entertaining and interesting to watch and engaging. And so it's to to blend those two together, I think is like extraordinarily hard to do to make an audience care about characters while constantly putting the audience through all this punishment of like just gore and graphic grim natured events that are happening. And at the same time, also being like so extremely cynical, (laughs) this movie really does not want to put hope up front i mean it's just like this (laughs) constant barrage of just like very cynical idealism yeah it's just like this awful place um nothing good can come out of it but there is uh this movie does shine a few moments of light we do see this kind of like beautiful friendship evolve between morgan freeman's character and brad pitt's character and so we'll get into that but before we go to our first clip and kind of really dig into seven Lindsay. Can you give me your interpretation? What is this movie about? Just to kind of give us an idea of what we're in for. So set in one of the gloomiest American cities ever caught on film, Lieutenant William Somerset is days away from retirement. He's jaded, burnt out, filled to the brim with wisdom, but seen more than he's ever wanted to in his line of work. And the last type of case he was looking to solve in his final week is a new serial killer who's patterning his murders after the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. On top of that, Somerset's forced to break in his replacement, Detective David Mills, a seasoned, eager, and brash temporary partner whose naive attitude isn't in line with Somerset's mindset. With Mills chomping at the bit to find this killer, Somerset helps ground him in following the clues and maybe, without each other, 
this case would have gone on much, much longer. Mills clearly loves the thrill as easygoing with his kind-hearted, slightly unfulfilled-with-life wife, Tracy. No matter what kindness or minor moments of lightness in the story, the backdrop is always Somerset and Mills being one step behind our killer we come to know as John Doe, who, through his repeated murders, believes he's reflecting the sins of the world back onto itself. He believes he knows what's wrong with society and that his work is to eliminate it. This isn't your average cat and mouse detective story. Seven sets the audience up to feel like it's ahead of the serial killer, only to be rocked by its devastating revelations. The film's darkness and cynicism still rival any genre movie or police procedural film to date. I mean, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. The only thing I can think of that even kind of touches this as far as like a procedural type film goes is Silence of the Lambs. But what this movie does, I feel, is even more intimate than that movie because we don't have a character like a Hannibal Lecter type character that's kind of like quote unquote helping the police. You know what I mean? Like it's this, these two guys, Somerset and Mills are in this and we're just kind of in the back seat with them, like watching them trying to figure this out until we get to meet the serial killer John Doe uh, at the very end of the movie. I love the comparison between seven and silence of the lambs because they're completely different films and they're both very stylized and again, very different in that way too. But the, the feelings behind it, even though they're both dealing with horrible, grisly crimes, it still is incredible to me that Silence of the Lambs can deal with that and not be as bleak and foreboding, which Seven is intending to do the entire time. But it doesn't feel like you're getting beaten over the face with it either. Well, let's go to a clip from Seven. We'll come back. We'll kick this thing off. Our serial killer summer starts now. This was found on the wall behind the refrigerator, the obesity murder scene. Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. It's from Milton. Paradise Lost. All right. I'm confused. It means that this is beginning. This was found behind the same refrigerator, written in Greece. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust. And envy. Seven. Hold on. That's not even my desk. You can expect five more of these. So with this movie, we're going to be talking about David Fincher quite a bit. And David Venture is very much a visual filmmaker in the same sense of like Ridley Scott. What they have both have in common, I think, is that there are directors who, when you see one of their movies, you're like, man, this like is distinct, distinctly a Ridley Scott film or a David Venture film. But they're both filmmakers who don't write screenplays. They are always taking somebody's work and kind of making their interpretation of it. And a lot of filmmakers do that, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, but a lot of those filmmakers also write their own movies. Um, I always kind of think of like distinct filmmakers as being a lot of ones that also are like writing their screenplays like Jarmusch or Wes Anderson. David Fincher, as far as I know, hasn't written any of the movies that he's directed. Maybe he like, you know, helped in shaping a story or something or doing some rewrites. But with Seven... This was a movie that came strictly from somebody else. It was a script that came to Fincher through the studio system. But as much as Seven is, I think, uh, 
such a David Fincher movie, a lot of the script and story is credited to Andrew Kevin Walker, who um, created the characters and the story and um, this wonderful universe that Seven takes place in. And maybe wonderful is not the best choice of words for it. I was going to say that, but it is an entire universe um, of its own. I think the most, the two most important things about you know this movie overall are really the the mood and just the atmospheric inspiration in which it came from. Um, and Andrew Kevin Walker drew on his own experiences, not you know from investigating murders or anything like that, but he did have a little bit of. Uh, culture shock when he moved from Pennsylvania to New York City in the late 80s, early 90s. And though the setting for Seven, it's not anywhere. It's an amalgamation of every large big city and at, at its worst and grittiest probably time in history. And Walker happened to move to New York at a time that it was known to be, you know, drug riddled and gritty, dirty. And, and he had some culture shock. He was also an aspiring screenwriter who was working just jobs to get by. So he, he calls the script to Seven his love letter to New York, which is kind of just mind-blowing to me. I mean, I know he means it. To write this script, you, I mean, you do have to kind of be in love with every aspect of it. And just because it's dark and bleak um, doesn't mean it's not a beautiful piece of writing. And it is. So in that way, I get how it's a love letter, but damn, that's that's a dark one. So he did draw on a few experiences of just uh, living in a gloomy, depressed city. And at the time when he originally thought of this uh, story for Seven, it was like 91, and studios were looking for films that were, um, I mean, kind of horror had was was fading out at the time. I don't think crime really ever, like true crime or or police procedural movies had really ever gone out of fashion, but it was kind of a low time for them. It was more adventure-based um, movies, uh, what we were seeing, and, and um, more blockbusters, at least what I remember at the time. And true crime and serial killer movies, while there had been those sprinkled throughout the decades, for sure, um, it didn't really hit its main stride until the early 90s. And I would say Seven helped kick that off. Also, anything with the the media blowing up, the Menendez brothers, the um, O.J. Simpson trial, of course. And I mean, we even see it reflected in Serial Mom that John Waters is taking all of this, that this giant pop culture obsession with crime and making an entire movie about it. So Walker um, writes this spec script and just meaning that he's going to write this story and just try to try to sell it to somebody. And he settles on the idea of something that people commonly know as the seven deadly sins, not really having any religious affiliation to him personally, but just we know what this idea is and I'm going to go with it. While he didn't have a personal connection to it, he was seeing New York at its kind of worst and grittiest and was seeing kind of what we hear John Doe say in the movie is that on every street corner, you're seeing every one of these sins that are, are talked about in the movie. And I like that the number seven has uh, more meaning, you know, as not only the title of the movie, but seven deadly sins, seven days in a week. Um, and that this movie all takes place over seven days. And um, seven days. Yeah. And also the, uh, the titling of this movie, you know, where it's like S E, and then there's a seven V E N, mm-hmm. you know, not always written that way, but 
kind of like became a thing and it's I don't clever. know I, I like it. it's clever you know it gives a little bit of a little bit extra to this movie and I, I, I do like that we're set up with like there's a countdown here going on well seven is uh, an intellectual movie as well as it is very visually interesting and like you you can watch this movie on multiple levels and be incredibly engaged I don't think Walker went too far with trying to make it too heady as far as serial killer or crime investigation it's a pretty straightforward type of movie and he knew that this was just kind of the tip of the iceberg as far as diving into the psyche of a serial killer and I think he even said too that the research that we see, there's a research kind of montage of Mills and Somerset. A lot of the things that we see in there that Somerset's going through the library, like those were actually some of the things that he like researched and used to write the movie. Um, and he found incredibly helpful. So, of course, why not put it in the movie? So he gets the script for Seven done, and then your next step is trying to sell it. And luckily, he does have um, a small Italian company who optioned it uh, called Pentafilms. I'm not sure why they fell into financial difficulties, but they um, in turn went to New Line, and the head of New Line at the time, Mike DeLuca, thought that it was an incredibly original story. And for, you know, this would have been 94, yeah, there wasn't anything like Seven that was being written. And especially... Uh, this movie went through a lot of drafts, which we'll go into, but this first draft um, was really just something that was fresh and pretty bold um, of a studio to take on, and New Line did, but there was one problem. They really didn't like the ending. They thought it was too dark, too bleak, and they needed something that was going to be more palatable to a mainstream audience. Okay, great. We've got a script. The next thing we need is a director, and they find that in David Fincher, who um, ends up reading the first draft of the script, but there was a little problem. He wasn't supposed to get the first draft of the original script. And when you say the first draft, you mean the head in the box was only I in do. the first draft and that was omitted from further drafts. I do. Because the studio did not want a head in the box scene. They didn't want the movie to end on no head in the box. Terrible, terribly <laughs> grim tale where there's just like no happiness. You know, I wonder if did I wonder if the script read like you saw a head in a box. Because I think that that is something that you walk away from this movie even now and you think that you see Gwyneth Paltrow's yeah. head in a box and you don't. You don't. But I wonder if that, were they all just imagining it? And even on paper, they're like, no, we're not seeing her head in a box. I wonder if that was it. Because it's it's a suggestion. Yeah, it, is, it is. But I can see, I, from a studio standpoint, I can see like you have a movie that is going to leave audiences t totally shocked. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I, I saw this movie with my mom when I was in high school and I remember the, the audience of this movie. Um, I saw it at the uh, AMC Esquire and Oh man, back in the heyday you know, and, and too. It was a, you know, Esquire. pretty big, you know, big opening night movie. And I remember just this like, you know, some movies that, you know, the credits go up and everybody just starts piling out and they're throwing their trash and like, oh, whatever, you know. This was a movie where it was like the first time where I just saw an audience like totally stunned and like nobody really like got it from their seat right away. It was just sort of like that <laughs> wash across the audience. Like you felt like it was just like this sort of like deflated feeling of like, dang, you know, this is going to stick with me on the way home. And I can see from a studio standpoint of them saying like, 
you don't want we, your audience yeah, left we, low. we want people to say like hey you should go see this yeah. movie and i could i could easily see someone walking out of this movie and being like this isn't for everybody i wouldn't i wouldn't <laughs> recommend you know certain people going to see this yeah. now for me i was like super duper fascinated with serial killers at this time in high school and like i was like riveted and you know it was like also seeing a movie that was all the elements of like action and like intrigue but then also like kind of delved into the psych psyche of serial killers a little bit not a ton but like we still got some of that procedural element as well as like the gory details of like the crime scene for a movie that's this dark i mean even watching it now it's just like wow i can't believe how huge this movie made like 300 million dollars it's like it's pretty it was a big movie and a really big film for david fincher I mentioned at the top of the episode that his first feature was Alien 3, which he's disowned, and that kind of gave people the wrong impression of like what kind of filmmaker David Fincher is, because like, there's a lot of hate for that film. And, I don't have it, and I like Fincher's version of it. Yeah, and... <laughs> and uh, his unedited version. Yeah, his unedited version. Fincher's came from like a completely different background than a lot of filmmakers. You know, He wasn't coming from necessarily like this film school to short film to working on an indie feature and then working with the studio. He came from a commercial background where he was doing commercials for like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Nike, and in in his 20s, in his early 20s. Strangely, uh, the coincidence here of like, he was interested in film as a young boy. And when he was 10, living in California, his neighbor who moved in was a young filmmaker that had a very big influence on David Fincher. And that, that filmmaker was George Lucas. And somehow that's just nuts, you know, cut to about a decade later when Fincher's 1920, he gets a job working at industrial light magic as a uh, matte photographer. And he's doing some digital stuff for George Lucas. He's working on return of the Jedi. He's working on temple of doom and then he sees a behind-the-scenes type movie documentary of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and that kind of gets him like thinking about behind-the-scenes stuff and like how movies get made. And that's when he's much younger. But cut to him working to commercials uh, and then working on music videos. He does a behind-the-scenes thing for. I believe it was Rick Springfield and then does a music video for Rick Springfield, ends up doing a music video for Don Henley, ends up doing a music video, Paul Abdul, straight up. Um, like I said in the beginning, Madonna's Express Yourself. He did George Michael's Freedom, Billy Idol's Rock the Cradle of Love. When you go back and look at some of these music videos, you can see the Fincher like black and white contrasty, darker images, more like emotionally darker content than you would see out of like pop artist videos from that time period. He's like in his 20s, like making tons of money, working with all these like huge musicians, and then gets the opportunity to direct a hugely budgeted franchise movie with Alien 3 and essentially gets like the rug pulled out from underneath him. The studio completely hates his version because he goes dark. He makes a really dark, drab, depressing alien movie, <laughs> and the studio meddles with it. They put out a version. A lot of people hate it. And then, unfortunately, David Fincher gets associated with that movie, and he didn't make a movie for a while, and I think going into Seven, you know, he 
this material called to his dark nature. Um, but he also liked this, you know, these intriguing characters and he wanted to put his spin on it. But like we were saying a little bit earlier, he saw that first draft version of the head in the box. And that was one of the main things of like, he was like, man, I've not seen that in the movie. Fought the studio right in the beginning to say, I want the head in the box sequence. I, this is how I want this movie to end. I respect that because I, I think about like, let's just say like movies that are like of a more experimental nature, you know, like, or like David Lynch movies. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like every David Lynch movie, but I'm glad that every David Lynch movie exists because sure, yeah. if nobody was taking chances to make movies that would normally not get made, then we would have only bland yeah. kind of middle of the road type movies. And we need filmmakers who will push the limits like David Fincher and seven and give us an ending that you normally wouldn't see. And that's why, you know, like we do all the, you know, a lot of these movies that we talk about that are resonating 20, 30 years later. And David Fincher said himself, so did Andrew, Kevin Walker, this is always going to be the head in the box movie. Uh, again, getting into Fincher's style of like making something that, looks extraordinarily beautiful but bleak at the same time and seven is one of those movies where it doesn't look like a regular movie like you can hit pause on any scene in seven and you could print that out and hang it on your wall i mean it's like a painting it's like a very unique looking film and not something that uh a lot of filmmakers would do in the same way when we talked about the godfather how that was a movie that like the studio is like, this movie's so dark and people were like, you can't see anything in this movie. It's yeah. like, why are you, and it's, and you can see things, but it's just like also playing with the absence of light and showing things, highlighting certain elements of the frame that normally you would want to light everything up so that the audience isn't missing anything. But in this instance, it makes the audience draw their eyes and focus on something specific because parts of the frame are like so dark. And that is unique to me. And it's like, Watching a movie like this, I love so many big, huge, like dumb, explosive Hollywood movies, but it is awesome when a director like David Fincher comes along and is able to work in the Hollywood system and get the budget to make something like Seven. And, you know, going back to a director like David Lynch, you know, you know when you hear interviews with Lynch or like John Waters, when they say, yeah, we don't, we can't make those movies anymore. We can't make a $20 million weird movie anymore (laughs) like a studio is not going to take a chance on that so it is nice to see to kind of see this moment in time where um the 90s where you had these really important filmmakers who were on the rise of like making bold movies with 30 40 50 million dollar budgets that are testing an audience limits and patience in what they're willing to accept in a mainstream film and it's not gratuitous either. It doesn't feel lofty. It doesn't, it, it feels like there was a lot of intention behind this visually. It wasn't a movie that was just messing with the audience to mess with them. And I do really like that about this film. As as far as its um, style and like what stands out to me the most is the coloration of the entire film and how wet it is everywhere. Watching the, the finale scene it, with Mills Somerset and John Doe, like the infamous head in the box, all that scene. That scene is so, um, it's very yellow, right? It's very warm and almost kind of blown out a little bit. It always has felt so hot to me and just, I don't even, I don't want to be in that situation. And I certainly don't want to find out that my wife's head is in a box and then be overwhelmed with that heat and just the 
uh, anger and all of those feelings that would come up out of that. And that coloration emphasizes that feeling. And then to see that scene without color processing, and there's a few clips of it out there like that, it's a completely different vibe. Thinking about this movie without the color processing that's been done over all of it and the particular style, I think that it would feel completely different. Yeah, so I totally agree. And kind of going back to what you said a minute ago I, about this movie is not something that's like trying necessarily to like shock an audience. It is shocking, but I couldn't agree more of like David Fincher doesn't feel like he's trying to hold a lemon up to your eyeball. I mean, there there is there are moments in this movie that are grotesque and hard to watch, but I don't ever feel like it crosses the line of like total exploitation. And also too, like, uh, you know, the senior mentioning like the moment that John Doe comes into the picture as far as like, you know, turns himself in and is apprehended. Um, yeah, we do spend this entire movie. that's like so dark and it's so it's raining all the time. And minus a few scenes where, you know, like the raid scene where they're going in to find the guy who's like been in bed for a year. It's like very purposely paced slowly. And I don't mean like in like a 70s style kind of like no. boring way, but like no. it's it's deliberately paced in a way that it's taking its time to let the scenes breathe and let these two characters interact and learn something about each other. But then once John Doe comes into the picture at the end of the movie, the pacing shifts and it's like so much more frantic. And we get these shots of like, you know, the sound music's coming in heavy. It's cross cutting between the guys in a helicopter and they're talking and you have all these extra voiceovers and it really opens the movie up because we felt so tightened and, and uh verklempt yeah yeah very i was thinking of the word uh like claustrophobic yeah. you know and then the movie kind of opens up and we're seeing this huge wide shot and like little bitty car driving you know the van driving down the road it's like so small and it just looks like a bigger film you know i felt like in the beginning it feels like we're kind of watching this like much smaller film it not only makes the ending shocking but it also like kind of jars the audience you know because we're like what is going to happen you know it's like it's so stressful that car ride goes i mean that scene goes on for like at least 10 minutes you know and they're having a conversation but i'm like glued to the screen three guys in a car talking just talking it is incredibly engrossing i could have watched just an hour of that really and it's the only time we get a sense, I mean, kind of going back to the Andrew Kevin Walker script, the only time we really get a sense of like who John Doe is and he's given it to us in his own words. And this is better than like seeing a scene in the movie where he's like confessing to his crimes. He's built a relationship with Mills. He is attracted to Mills. He's like wants Mills life. You know, he's impressed by Mills and he's impressed by the police work that these guys have put in that they've like invested their time and like you actually get the serial killer the 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 villains frame of mind of like where he's coming from what he wants to do and how he's not done with his like this project that he's completing and what i love about the script here is that we as an audience are guided through this movie by somerset morgan freeman's character He's, he's the wise one. He's guiding us through the movie, slowly pulling the curtain back and kind of telling us like, okay, just look at a little bit of it at a time. Things are going to get worse. And Mills, the Brad Pitt character in the scene where we've already, we've seen all this horrendous killing. 
he has the knee-jerk reaction that we usually, as an audience, and when we read about a terrible crime in the newspaper or anything, we have that similar reaction where we're just like, no, you're a psycho. You just want to, you just want to label it and say, you're a crazy person. I don't want to hear any like elaborate story. You're only doing this for fame. You don't want to know that there's some like significance to these horrible crimes that he's done. And I think that there's just, just great dichotomy in the script between Mills and Somerset and also like young and old because Somerset has been doing this. He's been ground down to a nub from this job and he's seen so much terrible tragedy, you know, and killings and he's not hungry. You know, he's not excited about doing this case. He just wants to like retire. And Mills, on the other hand, is like still hungry and he's like kind of like not not cheesy but corny in the way it's like, ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a, you know, murder <laughs> and the Somerset character is always kind of looking at him in the beginning like, you're an idiot. This isn't exciting. This is like, you don't want to go down this path that I've been down. You know, it's going to like totally, totally like fry you out. And what's wonderful about Seven to me as far as like, if you're someone who's into character arcs, which I really, truly am, you see this tremendous character arc of of Mills, Brad Pitt's character, of someone who is like a relatively happy person. You know, he's, he's, he's got a young wife. He's got two dogs at home. He's, he's moving up in his job. You know, he's, um, got a lot of pride, you know, he's got a little bit of ego and you see this person get totally go from this happy, go lucky, hungry detective to like someone who's like completely ground down to like worse off than Somerset is. Yeah. He's broken. He's worse off than like his partner is by the end of this, his partner who's been doing this for like 30 something years. And I think that that's one of the extra special things about Seven is that when we have conventional aspects to, say, a buddy cop movie, we've we've already said this movie doesn't have a happy ending, obviously. It's messing with the audience in the sense of switching up our conventions and going against what we think we're going to understand as a story structure in general. And it's flipping all of those to some things are what you might expect, like two, two guys, you know, the older cop and the younger cop, of course, they're going to butt heads, generational type of thing. But um, and, and they're going to they're going to learn things from each other, be influenced by each other. But in the end, we don't expect that to happen to Brad Pitt at all for him to be completely gone behind his eyes by the end of the film. And for the Somerset character to continue to be validated in his bleak outlook on the world, which, again, we don't expect that at all in a story that is a, a major Hollywood film. Well, and I also, too, like the idea, you know, you're saying like a buddy cop movie. And, mm-hmm. and it is, you know, I mean, in its essence, it is it has a buddy cop movie feeling where it's like it's the older cop and the younger cop and they butt heads. And, you know, there is this generational gap. But I do like that the script is peppered with this version of Somerset is like very cultured. You know, he goes to the library and, you know, he's yeah. like grilling these guys. Oh, you have all this, you know, literature and everything and you're playing cards. But then they they put on some classical music and you see that he there's a lot more to him, even though he works this job that's kind of a grind in. But he is like has this extreme intelligence and even the way that he's listening, very, very in tune to like what's going on around him. Whereas Brad Pitt's character of Mills is like all emotion. And also they don't, they, they kind of drive it home a little bit that he's like not intelligent, but that, you know, he gets the cliff notes. <laughs> he he kind of like it. mispronounces a couple of things, 
But then also when, uh, which is one of my favorite lines that is in the script of like, you know, just because this uh, fucker's got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. You know, he could have used like, you know, Einstein or like Newton or something. But instead he, you know, his version of a wise person is like this fictional Star Wars character. (laughs) And it just, again, it it really, these, these characters feel like very real to me and their relationship, their bond that grows through the movie. I like that it takes its time and that we do at the end, we feel something and we'll get into more of this when we talk about the cast, because I think that there's even an extension when the script covers like the Tracy character um, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who's um, Mills's wife in the movie. The friendship aspect in this film, um, though, you know, not to keep using the phrase buddy cop, but it is nice to see the evolution and how it's very subtle. There are a lot of humorous elements that are worked into the story, and I don't think that they're worked in because, oh, man, we needed a friggin' laugh. This is such a bummer. Um, it's more real-life uh, humor when you are suppressed by the darkness around you. And I think the, the best example um, of that, and also you can see how Mills and Somerset um, are different, is um, when Somerset comes over after Tracy's invited him over for dinner and the three of them are, are talking and they're saying, we got this apartment for a, it was a great deal. We couldn't figure out why. And it turns out they live by the loudest train in the world. And when it comes by, Somerset just like breaks out laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. And Tracy, in in realizing, you know, how awful it is to live with that every single day of your life, like you have to laugh about it. These two are laughing and you've got Mills over here who's like, it's still not funny. I'm just not, I mean, like I'll chuckle a little bit, but I'm not really, I'm not giving into this. Um, it says a lot about their characters and kind of like who they are. This guy's um, not going to laugh about something that he's irritated by, but he's also not been beaten down to the point of you have to friggin' laugh to like get through something awful. Yeah, told, yeah, absolutely. And it's so many moments like that that humanize these characters, understand where these characters are coming from. And then also we go on a journey with them because they, even though Somerset has more experience in Mills, they start working on this case and they start seeing stuff that neither one of them have seen before. And all the way to the point where the anticipation is building up for an audience, um, even all the way down to like, when they they have the conversation in the bar toward the end and Morgan Freeman's character is, is basically like, you know, if we catch him and he's the devil himself, it's still not going to even come close to like what we've built up in our minds of like, we're chasing this guy and like, how is this going to end? It's always interesting to me when characters in the movie have that realization because it's all we're thinking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like as an audience member, we're like waiting to find out who this John Doe character is. Two thirds of the movie, you're waiting yeah. to find out who and, this guy and, is, and we're and but yet we're having to sit and watch these two at a bar, kind of like worn down and and debate, you know, kind of debating like the the ethics and like the right and wrongs of the world and like what's wrong with the world today. But I still love. It's fascinating to me to listen to these two talk and to kind of get kind of get an idea of where they're coming from because we're about to see both of their lives lives change forever. And it's it's to me, it's like a really nice calming moment before things get really intense for like the next 30 minutes of the film to the grand finale. One of my favorite calming moments is when both Mills and Somerset are getting ready to 
be wired with a microphone and they're both shaving their chests and kind of like they feel they feel okay in that moment that John Doe's turned himself in. They're having this kind of bonding moment, even though they both know it's not over yet. It's this quiet, intimate moment that they're both having and just kind of lightly joking before this giant uh, storm that's going to befall them both. Well, since you brought it up, why don't we take this moment here to talk about the ending? And then we'll then we'll take a break after that and we'll come back and talk about the cast. But I, I agree that, that it's just that great little moment where they're like shaving. They make the joke about if you shave off a nipple, would that be covered under workman's comp? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it is like this moment where, you know, and if you haven't watched the movie, you don't realize that John Doe's already went to Mills's house and killed his wife. What's nuts, too, is how... Another convention that this movie flips a little bit is it plays on what the audience is assuming. So John Doe's turning himself in, which we kind of found out at the seminar that we went to with the criminologist Scott Bond the other night, that we found out that serial killers really aren't wanting ever to be caught. So I I do wonder, you know, if this would really happen for a a serial killer, but I digress. When John Doe is walking into the police station, you can see bandages on all of his fingers and he's like kind of has blood spattered all over him. My first thought is that blood's probably from his fingers. I mean, you've got to be bandaging yourself up. You've had to have touched, you know, your shirt at some point or the last person you killed, which was just the scene before. So for me, I'm thinking he's turning himself in. Maybe it's going to be over. And the movie plays on you like that. Yeah, and and you hear them say, you know, yeah, it, it was his blood and somebody else's blood. And there's that assumption that, like, you know, he hasn't completed his seven deadly sins, so he's going to take them out to find these two bodies. Then you also have two people left who are Mills and Somerset. Like, for me, if you're going to go, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, well, I mean, you got two guys left. You know that it's going to be something extravagant. I mean, this guy Mm -hmm. took a year with some guy tied to the bed, like, giving him drugs over here and taking photos. Like, they know that he is very meticulous and that he's planned this out to a T. Yeah, in your mind, this, like, fascination of, like, what could he possibly have planned? And, man, nothing annoys me more than when I see people on the Internet. Well, just people on the Internet annoy me to no end. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'm in a lot of Facebook film groups and all this kind of stuff, and nothing angers me more than when Seven comes up and someone's like, yeah, I totally knew it was going to happen at the end of this movie. And I don't buy that for an absolute moment. You know, maybe you thought something crazy is going to happen. Yes, you know, but I don't think anything could, like, prepare anyone for the first watch of this movie of, like, what you know, he has this guy deliver this box in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, your first thought is like, is it a bomb? Like what's going on? And then, and I think Somerset is like, there's no way this is a bomb. Yeah. And, and then even freaking out about yeah, that. And then, uh, and then John Doe starts taunting Mills and, and they're separated, you know, Mills and Somerset's like going over to find out why this delivery guy's like delivering this box. And, you know, Mills is like, what's, what's going on? You know? And of course we've get the whole, what's in the box, you know? But there's so much franticness going on. It's like the first time you're watching it, you, you, it's it's easy to like not hear everything. And there's actually even a moment where Morgan Freeman, I rewound it like six times. I still can't. I want to do it with subtitles so I can figure out what he's saying. Summer said something, you know, he says something like she was a suspect or something like he says something that implies that it is Tracy's head. But I can't understand because there's so much noise and the helicopter and everything's going on. It's just such that frantic scene to where once John Doe says, you know, I'm the final 
one, you know, you need to kill me basically. And you, now you see just this like horrific moment of like him making this decision of like, yeah, I want to kill this guy. I mean, and he has every, you know, right in his mind. It's like this guy just like not only chopped her head off, but like had it sent to him some sick shit and the double whammy of finding out that she was also pregnant that is one of my favorite moments though is when is when john doe reveals that she was pregnant the immediate reaction of somerset and just smacks him really hard in the face like dude can you can you not like you just made it exponentially worse with somerset basically like i get it kind of pleading with mills to say you know don't let him win but and now we're gripped, you know, the audience is just like, you're you're trying to comprehend what you've just, the information that you've just been given. And then when Brad Pitt blows away John Doe, you know, you're, it's kind of that moment where you're, you know, there's a little bit of a cheer. Then you feel like draining thing of like, damn, this, I mean, this guy's life is like wrecked. Like John Doe just like wrecked his life. And also you kind of go back and you think about all the stuff that John Doe said in the car. And it's just like, yes, as fascinated as we are with serial killers and the way they operate, he's right. People will look over his work for years and years and like study it. And just, I mean, the thing that you and I went to last night, um, this criminologist, Dr. Scott Bond is like on tour doing the psychology of serial killers and like why we're fascinated with them. And it was sold. I mean, it hardcore sold out. There was like eight, 900 people there when we went last night and 97% women. Yeah. Which I didn't expect, but I was like, Oh, well, um, no doubt that this wouldn't just be like a, a quick little footnote. Um, people would like look at John Doe's work and in some of the stuff that he's saying, isn't like, it's not total BS, you know, like when he's talking about like, how there's a sin on every corner and how we've like come to, and this is before the internet, before like we've been desensitized from everything, uh, you know, violence or killing or all kinds of, you know, just crazy stuff. You know, I'm not saying that he has like, I'm not saying that like John Doe was like some genius or something. And this was like a good message to send to the world. But I'm just saying like, as far as like doing a movie about a serial killer and a serial killer having like some sort of like, um, methodical idealism or like why why did they do it about as good of an answer you know reason is I think like a scriptwriter could come up with in the movie and make it fascinating and make you think about it you know after the movie's over and you then have this this man who's explaining everything behind what he considers his work I mean really and you think back to when Mills and Somerset invaded his apartment and you think about how everything was methodically written and researched and just everything that went into this man's psyche, we saw it before and now we're seeing the words that are coming out of his mouth. It's not like we, again, I'm not validating, like, like you said, I'm not trying to validate or anything, but when you listen to him and you go, I mean, what you're saying makes sense from your point of view. There's just a different way to maybe to handle or deal with that or maybe see a friggin therapist but everyone in that car you can identify with you can identify with brad pitt who's i think that's who i would be honestly in that car i would be making some comments but morgan freeman over here is observing everything about john doe and john doe is just a hair from being set off and when he is 
it's like the one time that he's absolutely terrifying too. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Let's go to another clip from Seven, and then let's uh, let's talk about Kevin Spacey's performance. We'll come back to John Doe because it is something. Who are you, John? Who are you, really? What do you mean? All I mean at this stage, what harm can it do to tell us a bit about yourself? It doesn't matter who I am. Who I am means absolutely nothing. You need to stay on your left up here. So where are we heading? You'll see. We're not just going to pick up two more dead bodies, are we, John? That wouldn't be shocking. We've got newspapers to think about, yeah? Wanting people to listen, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them with a sledgehammer. And then you'll notice you've got their strict attention. But the question is, what makes you so special that people should listen? I'm not special. I've never been exceptional. This is, though, what I'm doing. My work. The work, John? Yes. See, I, I don't I, I don't see anything special about it, John. That's not true. No, it is true. And the funny thing is, all this work, two months from now, no one's gonna care, no one's gonna give a shit, no one's gonna remember. You can't see the whole complete act yet. But when this is done, when it's finished, it's going to be... People will barely be able to comprehend, but they won't be able to deny. Could the freak be any more vague? I mean, as far as master plans go, John. I can't wait for you to see. I really can't. It's really going to be something. Well, you know what? I'm going to be standing right next to you. So when this big thing happens, you be sure and let me know, because I wouldn't want to miss it. Oh, don't worry. You won't. You won't miss a thing. John Doe, played by Kevin Spacey. What a role. This was one of the few movies where they hid who the actor was. Like they didn't have, uh, I think it, it might have been Kevin Spacey that suggested not having his name be in the open credits. And Kevin Spacey had been in quite a few movies and had established himself as like kind of that sardonic wit. Like he was really good in swimming with sharks. And, but 1995 was like a big year for him. He had two movies, Seven and Usual Suspects, where he, they both had like these weird (laughs) plot twist endings and he was like the center of the twist. Really great in both of these. And then also uh, had a supporting role in Outbreak. His character in this, I love that we, it's like he's such a big part of this movie, but he's only in it for like the last 30 minutes. I mean, we do have that moment where his face is covered and there's that scene where Mills is chasing him, but we don't know it's Kevin Spacey yet. And uh, you you hit the nail on the head. You said uh, they make him look like Dark Man. There's that scene where he like, he like swoops down down and then like (laughs) leaps over something. They make him look like a superhero, not a serial killer. His role in this is so good because he does have that, the way he talks, you know, and that like tempered, like keeps his voice calm, but then like gets very excited, really makes 
his character super scary. And I always, you know, I mean, I know Kevin Spacey's in this movie, but like, I don't ever think of Kevin Spacey when I think of seven. And I've seen this movie like 20 times. And when he finally comes on screen, I'm like, Oh yeah, Kevin Spacey's the killer in this. Not that I forget, but it's just one of those things you're, you don't see him for so long. And I know Kevin Spacey, like we can't, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on him. I know like Kevin Spacey's like kind of over these days, but was really putting in so many good performances in the nineties that like, I'd forgot how many not memorable movies he'd done post (laughs) American beauty. I was kind of looking at the filmography and I was like, Whoa, I mean, either movies I'd never heard of or like had never seen, or that I remember seeing once and thinking like, yeah, that was not that great of a movie, I guess, until house of cards came along and that revitalized his career. But yeah, I think seven is one of his best roles. And, um, a really, yeah, measured and menacing performance and to do so much in so little screen time, because, uh, I, I don't know that I feel like there'd be in so much pressure on an actor if you're reading the script, because they're all this, you know, we, we've like, as an audience been watching this guy's method and like all these people he's killed and they've really built it up. So it's like, even though there's a character on the page and, there's something to cling to an actor really has to bring that to life and bring something we've been waiting for. Like he has to be like intelligent and creepy and excitable. And I think you brought up, I don't know if it was off the mic or on the mic, but like when he's like, when he's rocking back and forth, the jostling in the backseat, he's like, he's like excited. And then, uh, so gross. And Somerset's like, what are you excited about, about there, uh, John, um, also too, just like this phony name of John Doe just yeah, we never makes know his it, name. Yeah, it makes it even more like mysterious. It's, it's like an over a 10 minute scene, but it's like totally riveting. And you're like hanging on every word that Spacey says in that. As an actor, Kevin Spacey's voice, I think adds so much to his, all of his performances. And to play this character of John Doe, he does need to have a lot of control about his voice. And Kevin Spacey does in every single performance. I think, I think the most about it in American Beauty uh, on a lot of his line deliveries because it's a lot of it is a uh, um, backhanded or sarcastic or you know but saying um, your lines in a very controlled matter-of-fact way and the one time that we see John Doe lose it it's like he amps it up a little bit and it's enough to be completely jarring even when we hear Kevin Spacey's voice for the first time on the phone it's so sharp and quick and you can tell that this guy's intelligent and he's even terrifying just on the phone, just hearing his voice the first time. Yeah, I do like the moment that he he's so calm and reserved. But then when he gets kind of angry at Mills because uh, Mills was like, oh, I thought you only killed innocent people. And he's like, was it supposed to be funny? You know, and he like gets like, so and you can even see like Somerset kind of looks in the rearview mirror. And then even Mills is like, whoa, 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 calm down. Like he, it's like he he kind of turns on the dime and like becomes like really scary. And, you know, it was actually Pitt who fought for Kevin Spacey to be in this movie. I think they'd already blown their budget on Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow, and they didn't want to pay what Spacey's agent was asking. Eventually, um, after a lot of lobbying by the cast, um, that's why he ended up in this movie. Yeah. Well, speaking of Brad Pitt, the character of Mills, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about 
the contrast between him and Somerset in this movie. This is the only negative thing I'm going to say about this movie. I really <laughs> love this movie, and I really do love Brad Pitt. I think he's put in so many good performances. And prior to Seven, I mean, he puts in one of my favorite performances of his is a serial killer in California two years prior to Seven. Love that movie. And Thelma and Louise, you know, we did Thelma and Louise for an episode. And he's great in both of those movies. But after that, he did Legends of the Fall, which that was kind of like his uh, DiCaprio Titanic type movie where he became sort of the handsome movie star. This movie, he's playing not so much on his looks. I mean, he's still like, you can't make Brad Pitt not look handsome, but they kind of downplay it a little bit in this movie. But I do find his acting in this to not be one of his best roles. I think it's a great character that he plays, but I feel like a lot of the time it feels like you're watching someone try to do a performance, you know, with all like the head rubbing and all these like little things he puts in. I I don't think he's bad in this movie, but it's like one of the few movies where I see Brad Pitt and it feels like he's like trying to do something. It's like you see an actor trying to do something they're like adding something whether it's like a twitch or something it feels a little bit disgenuine it doesn't feel like I'm watching this character whereas like I know Morgan Freeman's voice and all this stuff but I still when I watch this movie it's like you feel like you're watching like Somerset not Morgan Freeman and this I kind of feel like more a little bit at times I'm watching Brad Pitt again I don't think he's bad in this movie I love Brad Pitt in this movie but it it is there's a, a few times in the movie where I don't feel like you're, you know, it's like it's totally in line. But at the same time, it, this was a different kind of movie for him. And I do feel like he is an actor that we've seen grown over the last like 25 years to where, you know, you see him in a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's like he's like so confident and calm and like everything seems so his character seems so effortless, you know. So it's interesting to me to see like this is this was him like really starting to take on these like bigger roles, like media roles and like kind of put his spin on it. I love Brad Pitt as an actor. He's, you can put him in pretty much, in my opinion, I think you can put him in pretty much any type of role and he'll do his take on it, whether if you think it works or not. And I think I know what you mean by being a little annoyed with his character. It doesn't particularly bother me I think him being a little naive and you know his clothes don't fit right he's kind of through his dialogue you said earlier you know that he mispronounces some words he drops a couple fag bombs too like he's an annoying guy and it really isn't until um John Doe holds his life in his hands and like decides to not kill him um in the middle of the movie is really the time when I feel like I actually begin to like his character because he's taken down a peg. He's still got that uh, naiveness about him, but he's starting to kind of sink into reality a little bit more. So I like his character. I wish that he paid a little bit more attention to his wife, which becomes evident later on. But, you know, his performance in this doesn't bother me too much because I think it's more about the character, me being bothered by the character initially than anything else. Yeah. And for me, it's like the opposite. Like, I I mean, (laughs) again, don't get me wrong. I think Brad Pitt is good in this movie. I just, it's, I think his performance is, is a little underplayed, but like, I do like his character. And again, I mean, like I said in the beginning, we see that such a huge arc you know, from Mm -hmm. someone who is 
not the best, the most well-spoken character. And then like toward the end of the movie, we see this guy who's just been like through the ringer. And I love the, the interplay between him and Somerset. You know, I think the performance, Brad Pitt and, and Morgan Freeman really play off each other. And I really feel like we get a sense that they are bonded toward the end of the movie. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, whether you love her or hate her, when I was rewatching this, the character of Tracy kind of blows me away. I didn't realize she was 22 in this movie. I mean, she had done a few things, but it just seems like such a mature performance in uh, such a depth of like sincerity and like sadness. And she's hardly in the movie at all, but like she stays with you. And I mean, and she has to, because you have to have a connection between her. You have to um, feel for her because otherwise the the ending is not going to have the impact that it has because you need to number one remember who she is and have that mean something because it's like okay her head is in this box but at the same time you're like this really humane person who like seems very in touch with the world and her own sensibilities and like is her kindness and her inviting Somerset over and like wanting to get to know him because he's spending all this time with her husband and their lives are in each other's hands. There's so much going on with the scenes between her and Somerset and Brad Pitt. And then also probably one of the best scenes in the entire film is her meeting Somerset for lunch and discussing her problems with him and the fact that they let that scene play out and that her performance in that it's like you really feel for her and you really feel how like lost she is in the city and we as an audience have already seen how gritty and terrible the city is and then you can you only feel terrible for her and just like oh man you're stuck by yourself and then your husband is like also dealing with some of the worst stuff imaginable like and trying not to bring that home at the end of his shift. And she's so understanding of that too. She's so kind. Like you said, she isn't in this movie very much, but she does make an impression on you. And that's because Tracy, not only is it about Gwyneth Paltrow's performance, but Tracy has affected the movie deeply. She's affected how Mills and Somerset relate to each other. She's also humanizing the narrative in in the story and making it personal when she opens up to Somerset and gets him to open up a little bit more. And even though her character um, could have easily had more scenes thrown in, the way that this movie is going and what it's about, it wasn't her story. I mean, at the end, Yes, it definitely turns into that, but it really wasn't necessary. And I think in some films you can look at her role and be like, well, we needed we needed just the relationship. We needed the woman. We just needed somebody to fill that role. And sometimes that is what it feels like. And it feels very one note, not with the character of Tracy. And I do think that her relationship, um, I mean, in real life with Brad Pitt at the time, probably played into a lot of their chemistry together and, and them feeling so relaxed and so at ease it's easy to forget that when you know this movie came out you cast a couple which people don't really you don't like to do really is to cast a couple what if they break up during the production but I think in doing this not only did it help the movie at the box office I think it helped overall the chemistry of uh, the film well let's get down to Morgan Freeman let's do it in my mind, this is Morgan Freeman's movie. Yes. I mean, this this movie is about Somerset. This movie is about him being fed up with society and the way the world works. And he's just, he's he's ready to be finished closing this chapter in his life of like not having to deal 
with seeing all these horrible things and seeing all the terrible things that people can do to each other. And even in 1995, the detective cop, and it's his, like his last few days and then gets like sucked into some case, was already a huge trope. Mm-hmm. Somehow this movie manages to like sidestep it being such a trope because you're so invested in like his methodical way of like dealing with every case and you realize like yeah he can't walk away from this he needs to see this through because also he knows that Mills is is not ready for this I mean you know he says it in the movie but like you can see his sense of like wanting to protect somebody from going down this dark path that they're about to go down and they become like bonded forever because of it to me, this movie, like, you would think that it was written for Morgan Freeman. They let his intelligence come through. They let his voice come through. It's crazy to me that, like, it, it, you know, just a few years later, he would do a movie like Hard Rain. You know, oh, it was like man. they should have just been, like, handing <laughs> Morgan Freeman, like, amazing script after amazing script after his performance in this. Morgan Freeman's coming off of, I mean, one year earlier, coming off of The Shawshank Redemption. I mean, there's very few actors that I can think of that gave like back-to-back performances like this um, kind of astounding really. And David Fincher thought that this movie was maybe too mean for Morgan Freeman. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption, Driving Miss Daisy. He's maybe not going to be the first shoe in. Of course, this is going to be perfect for Morgan Freeman, but he is the moral compass of this film. And just how we feel, like whether it's through Morgan Freeman's roles that he's chosen throughout the years, he can take the role of Somerset, like old and grizzled and has seen it all. I mean, it's kind of Morgan Freeman a little bit. His heart is full Um, He cares too much and is sick of being in this depressive society, but it's also become so normalized to him. So the idea of being so empathetic, you feel like you've given up, but you also have a large enough heart to not give up. That speaks to me and says that is all something that Morgan Freeman can do. Has he ever been a killer in something? Well, in Street Smart, he's a he's a pimp and he's that's right. He's pretty mean in that. And then also, I mean. And he's pretty mean. I mean, he's a grizzled, not grizzled, but he's a pretty intense teacher. Yeah, and in a, lean on me. Lean on yeah, me. He's, yeah. he's pretty mean in that. Yeah, that's right. But Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, there. he did go through a period here where he was playing like these sort of like intelligent characters that are um, trying to fight evil forces. You know, I mean, he did several of these serial killer type movies after seven, mm-hmm. um, but all of them, you know, are elevated because of Morgan Freeman. Totally, And even though he did do a number of, yeah, the type serial killer police type stories after this, David Fincher said about his performance that he, if possible, he made the character of Somerset sadder than how he was written. And I don't think any of the roles after seven had that same, they still had the same care and empathy and, and warmness, some more than others that Morgan Freeman gives to all of these roles. But the character of Somerset, he's just layered, man. He's got a lot going on. And um, it's cool to see Morgan Freeman play. I mean, Somerset's a cool guy. I would want to like go out and have a beer with him and hear his wisdom. You see it with Tracy and you see it with his heart and just uh, all the layers that keep getting pulled back. And then by the end of the movie that he's still the same, but has just gone through so much. Um, I don't know. Morgan Freeman. I don't know who else could have done this one. 
what I always love with great performances of actors is how they react to certain things, you know, and there's just, this movie is just like littered with Morgan Freeman reacting to like Mills saying something idiotic, you know, a smile, a glance, even a moment where uh, he, he's trying to talk to the captain, uh, Arlie Ermey's character, and, you know, he's he's going to be leaving in a few days, so there's like some like maintenance guy who's like scraping his name off the door yeah. and he's like trying to have a conversation. It's like er, er, in the background and he's like, excuse me, excuse me. Could you not do that please? <laughs> and just as his, the way he reacts to every little thing just feels like wholly authentic and like totally immersed in the character where it's just not a, an actor giving like this sort of monologue performance or like one moment where they're yelling or screaming. He doesn't seem to do any of that. Like Morgan Freeman always like a lot of times keeps it very calm, doesn't raise his voice, but is still like as effective as someone who's, you know, winning an Oscar for like screaming through a whole scene, which, you know, is usually what wins an Oscar. And it's funny you bring that up because one scene where he does have to have um, the biggest reaction is when he discovers Tracy's head in a box and Morgan Freeman said that um, when that scene came up he's done so many roles throughout the years and he's like I've never come up to something like this like this is what I'm faced with and I honestly don't know how I would react in that and he said he wasn't completely satisfied with his performance in that scene but man I don't know Somerset goes from controlled and solid in how he sees the world and then that, that is what um, really shakes his ground. And that's when you can hear it in his voice. That's when he slaps John Doe, which is something he would have never done. He's not going to bust down John Doe's apartment door because it's against procedure. But after that moment, and even though it's in the finale, um, the depth of Morgan Freeman's performance can really be... I, I, I love that reactive yeah. scene. Yeah, there's one other final thing I wanted to mention, a little thing that Morgan Freeman does, and that's when they're outside of John Doe's apartment, and they know that John Doe lives there, but Brad Pitt just wants to bust down the door, but they've paid someone for information, so legally they're not allowed to go in without cause, and Morgan Freeman's like very practical, he's very measured, and he's like, you know, this isn't going to hold up in court, and Brad Pitt just wants to kick the door down because he's like, all emotional because he's just been like bashed in the head by John Doe. And there is a moment where Morgan Freeman grabs Brad Pitt, trying to shake some sense into him. And then Brad Pitt is the first time he's ever like yelled at like Somerset. And he's like, get your freaking hands off me. And you see Morgan Freeman react. And the way he does it is like so pitch perfect. It's sort of like a, I crossed the line. Like I respect you. Like I just, I needed you to calm down, but I, I shouldn't have like grabbed you and like thrown you up against the wall. And he's like, nope, you're right. You're right. And there's like this, his reaction to that, it's just like, there's so many different little things going on of like, you know, regrets, you know, trying to get his, his self back together. You know, he's like trying to keep his composure there, but at the same time is like, I need to like jump in and like really handle the situation and like take control. But then he realizes like, I wouldn't want someone grabbing me. And he has this look of like, yeah, I apologize. Like without saying, you know, he's like, you're right, you're right. I'm sorry. But like his eyes and his reaction to Brad Pitt getting upset about that, uh, those are the little things to me that are like magic. You know, it's like when I see an actor pull off these like little moments. I mean, and they all all those little things add up to to a great sum of a performance. And like 
the depth of a character, but I could just all day long, like when I watch this movie, just these little glances and stuff. I just, I could, I could just shut my brain off for the other parts of this movie of how amazing it looks and the score and everything else. And just kind of watch all these little things that Morgan Freeman does in his performance of Somerset. Now, Morgan Freeman's creative choices in this film are, are stunning. Definitely. I feel like we'd be remiss if, uh, before we close out this cast section, if we didn't bring up something that wasn't intended to happen in the story. And that was a, a decision that maybe Brad Pitt could have not made. But it looks cool on film. During the chase sequence of him running after John Doe, he does, um, I mean, it looks pretty good. Um, he wanted to jump over some cars. It's raining. It's slick. He put his butt right through a windshield and had like his you know arms and legs kind of out of the car and was like, okay, we got this shot. This looks real good. And had tried it a few times. Um, but on that last one, when he got up, he was like, oh, something's, something's not right. And it sure wasn't. He ended up, I think, cutting a nerve and a tendon and through three fingers. So when you see Mills in a cast for the rest of the movie, that really was Brad Pitt's messed up arm. You know, because you're not shooting this film in sequence, too. They were shooting scenes before that actually happened. I think that happened during week seven of filming during a 55-day shoot. So they had to obscure his arm, and sometimes it wasn't the easiest thing to do. So that's a little Easter egg in there if you want to try to find the the spots in which Brad Pitt's arm is kind of obscured. Yeah, which is why they hire stuntmen. And it, you always <laughs> when you always hear about an actor, like, oh, man, I'm going to do, do this stunt, you know, and they... They want it to be them. You don't, this is an instance where you don't realize how it's going to affect the rest of the movie because if they get hurt and they're shooting out a sequence, then you're going to have this injury that you have to like all of a sudden ride into the movie. As impressive as uh, Tom Cruise is to me for like all these Mission Impossible movies he does, I'm assuming like producers, the director, everybody's just like, please don't hurt yourself because you're like in every frame of this film. There's no way we can write in that uh, Ethan Hunt is in a wheelchair for the last half of the movie. <laughs> yeah, luckily it did work out for the character of Mills that he could have a, you know, looks like a broken arm for the rest of the movie. Well, thankfully, uh, Brad Pitt was able to work that into the movie and it came out okay. Uh, Seven was released to massive success. I mean, $327 million in 1995 for a movie that costs about $30 million to make. Catapulting Brad Pitt, he was already a top build star here, but like becoming an international superstar. Seven, strangely, wasn't as critically acclaimed as you would think it would. A lot of critics came down on it pretty hard for the violence, the bleak ending. I can understand that totally. Um, Seven is one of those few movies, though, now that has kind of been reevaluated over the years. And now I think it's kind of looked at as a classic in the genre of like crime films and like is considered one of the best serial killer type movies ever made. And I wholeheartedly agree. This is a movie that I've always liked, but like every time I watch it, I have a bigger appreciation for it. The 90s for Fincher, you know, he went on to do Fight Club, which has become a cult classic. But to me, I think Seven is his most entertaining movie in the most of like you watch it and you're like, this is totally David Fincher's style. This is totally his vibe. But then also we have the serial killer element that he keeps going back to and then also uh, brought that to Netflix's Mindhunters, which unfortunately, uh, if you're a fan of that, you know, um, did not get renewed for a third season. But somehow he's managed to like continue to do the serial killer thing and keep it fresh um, and continue to make it be 
more about the procedure and more about the psychology, not so much about the gruesome details, though he never uh, seems to lack in that portion of these serial killer type movies either. Oh, give me Mindhunters all day. I love that. As far as the reaction to this movie, it is incredible. I love that it did so well. But the first test screening of this, someone came up to David Fincher and said, don't worry, you know, you'll you'll probably get another job after this. People were walking out of the test screening saying the people who made this movie should be killed. But to be fair, too, these were people that got cards saying, this is starring Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall and Morgan Freeman from Driving Miss Daisy. This is not the movie that you expect to walk into. But now that it has become something that is... Um, appreciated and it should have been critically appreciated in the same way that it is now uh, when it came out but you know what it's more than the head in the box movie it really is um one of I don't know if it's um it's probably my probably my second favorite David Fincher and probably going with Zodiac I don't know if you'd put it as number two but I would say this is probably my favorite Fincher movie, but I think that Zodiac is his best movie. But those are the two movies that, that I always go back to with Fincher. I definitely appreciate some of his other movies. I appreciate Fight Club. I have appreciation for the game. Those are the movies I don't go back to as often. And one of his most critically acclaimed movies is The Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons, where he you know, worked with Brad Pitt again. And that's probably my like least favorite David Fincher movie. I do need to revisit Social Network. That's a movie that even though it hasn't even been out that long, has like been now being reassessed as like one of the best films of like the last 20 years. And so I need to, I'm not on that train, but I need to revisit that and reevaluate that movie. I don't know if it was like something that was like in tune to when it came out. I saw it in theaters and it just didn't stick with me, but that's one I, I think I'm going to revisit in the next uh, couple weeks here. I definitely enjoy the social network, but I would say, and this is um, this this might be a curveball. I love the experimentation that he was doing with camera work um, in Panic Room. I thought Panic Room is it, it's it's a very like kind of popcorn. I mean, it, it's still dark, um, but I I love that movie. I think it's totally entertaining. Well, I love uh, uh, interviews with Fincher. He calls Panic Room his like doing a simple B movie mm-hmm. and there's like so much going on in that film. It's like this very complex, like wildly shot film uh, in the camera work, especially like what you're saying, the craft in that movie is so much higher than like what he's calling, like, you know, the simple B movie, yeah. like, you know, that's your B movie, <laughs> you know, genre picture, uh, man, I would absolutely love to see like Fincher do a full on horror film. Um, that would be my dream. Before we close this out, we have to mention the music and score in this. The music supervisor was the renowned Howard Shore. I think the score is something that you don't, like every brilliant movie, when you don't notice it, but it's amping up your um, emotions, that it's not taking over the film, that's the best. And that's what I feel Howard Shore's score does in this film. One thing that stands out um, as far as the music goes is the beginning title sequence to me. It is not only using the Nine Inch Nails song Closer, as somebody who was glued to MTV in the early 90s, it, I mean, it looks really like it was influenced by the video for Closer that was directed by Mark Romanek. That uh, title sequence kind of became revolutionary with movies doing title sequences. Like, you you notice that, and I think David Fincher's been like that person that's like influenced other Mm -hmm. creators, and of course, like after... Seven came out with that title sequence. 
other movies were starting to like adopt oh, yeah. some sort of like let, let's do something cool with our title sequence so let's not just put the words up on the screen of like the actors and the the movie title this movie like does it in a way that like makes sense it doesn't just feel like hey we're gonna do this like really cool title sequence like panic room as much as the title sequence and that is like really cool it feels like a little bit like over the top like yeah why are you doing this <laughs> like let's just open the movie but this one feels like purposeful because they they're showing all the different things that john doe's working on it's a call forward to something that we're gonna see later on in the movie yeah well, let's stop there. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Seven at the end of the episode, but we should get into more serial killer talk with our picks of the week. Lindsay, you chose Kiss the Girls, which I think is another great Morgan Freeman detective movie. Um, what can you tell me about that? You know, Justin, I know you know this, but I would marry 90s thrillers if I could. And there was no way around not choosing Kiss the Girls for me in connection to Seven. On the surface, in amongst a sea of various crime thrillers of the decade, this Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd-led film might look like your run-of-the-mill serial killer thriller, but there's much more that sets it apart. This entire film has a solid creeper vibe, immediately cluing us into thinking this perpetrator is a violator of women, he takes pleasure in it, it's a compulsion rooted in a power dynamic, dominance, and superiority. You know, many of your average fetishes of stalkers, a murderer, kidnapper, creep type. And that's the type of killer we're tracking in Kiss the Girls. Based on the James Patterson novel of the same name, this story follows a Washington, D.C. detective and well-known forensic psychologist, Alex Cross, played by Morgan Freeman, who becomes part of a missing persons investigation out of Durham, North Carolina, after learning his niece is the latest kidnap victim. The killer we're chasing in Durham calls himself Casanova. And as it's astutely observed in the movie, it's doubtful the real, albeit he was a womanizer and grifter, the namesake of Casanova would not have approved of this kidnapper and serial killer of women. Without ruining too much about the movie, Casanova's crimes are also mirrored on the opposite side of the country. Is it the same person? Is it just a coincidence? A red herring, perhaps? Well, this is just one aspect of the story that makes it stand out from the crowd. Securely seating us into a story of an outsider entering a good old boy police network, the investigation quickly blows up when the first body is discovered, and there are no leads that have us closer to finding the killer. Kiss the Girls begins with two stories, the beginning of the investigation and the kidnapping of a woman who will break the case. Kate McTiernan, played by Ashley Judd. She's a doctor, a kickboxer, a compassionate woman who spent her time being the best she can be and feels a sense of responsibility, especially when she's the only victim who escapes Casanova's clutches, leaving her riddled with guilt when she knows that she left behind easily six or seven other faceless female voices behind in some dank, gothically lit dungeon of physical and emotional torture. Another detour from the normal serial killer thriller is Detective Cross's professionalism, true empathy for the victim, and composure are all things that lead the story. And this isn't typical of your rogue detective that no one believes operating outside proper channels. Of course, he is an expert profiler and psychologist, which adds a lot more depth, but there's not a lot of preconceived, arrogant police deductions. Cross almost seems like Seven's Detective Somerset's younger brother, someone who's just as accomplished but less jaded, but with the same amount of care and justice within. Equal to his strength in conviction and determination is Kate. For almost half the film, Cross is tracking down leads juxtaposed with the fresh hell that Kate is experiencing. And when Kate makes her escape only a few days after being captured, this is when things amp up. 
Her escape, by the way, looks like a real-life physical torture bestowed upon Ashley Judd and her stunt double. It's filmed with such urgency and hurried chaos and desperation. We definitely know that Kate will stop at nothing to get away from Casanova. And having the female protagonist escape so early on in the film is an unexpected shakeup for the genre at the time. To not only best her captor against insurmountable odds, but then join the investigation along with Detective Cross. David Class's screenplay adaptation perfectly follows a thriller conventions, but with just enough turns to one, not confuse the audience, and two, still keep us engaged and guessing, and three, this entire story is seemingly plausible. The story pivot points are well-placed, even curious at times. On my first rewatch, I remembered the exact ending, but had forgotten a few killer-related details that really sew up a lot of loose ends. What's another convention that Kiss the Girls breaks, thankfully, that there's no budding love interest brewing between Detective Cross and Kate, which is a typical trope that falls into place just for added drama. This type of story edition would have felt so inappropriate for a film that deals with kidnapping and abusing and raping women. And speaking of the latter, for anyone who's easily triggered by these aspects in a movie, the only torture that's shown is mental, not physical, if that makes a difference for anybody out there. I can't help but think that this was an intentional choice. It's great to see a movie that doesn't exploit abuse for a cheap voyeuristic thrill, which is totally something that happens all the time. Judd and Freeman are unflappable in their performances, though Freeman has reprised a detective role. He plays Cross with dignity and a much younger spirit than what's seen in Seven. And give me Ashley Judd playing a strong female character any day. There's a reason that the woman is chosen for roles like this, and her piercing, steadfast presence in Kiss the Girls might be one of my favorite roles from her. I hesitate mentioning the rest of the cast because anything else might clue you into who the killer or killers or red herrings might be, but best to say that Carrie Elwes is great at playing against type, Tony Goldwyn is forever and always terrific at playing an awful person, and hey, Brian Cox coming in as the head honcho policeman in charge, he's criminally underused in this movie, but still brings a grounding force to the film. Before I close this out, the film's coloration choices are also worthy to note. It's often rich in blues and darker accents, but also deep oranges and like fiery colors that dimly light Casanova's cavernous dungeon. Because of a lot of lighting choices and coloration choices, it would be best to watch this movie with a lot of absence of light, so try to watch it at night if you're going for a rewatch. And I love how this film ends. Like, the climax happens and then that's it. We're out. And in saying that, I've never seen a carton of milk used in a better way for an effective, crafty climax as it's used in Kiss the Girls. And while we're experiencing this so, so very cringy buildup to knowing who the kidnapper is before our heroine does, the film throws in a few very well-placed, can you hold this knife for me type of jokes. It feels like it's having fun with the audience because we've been through this harrowing adventure for almost two hours of tension and Judd's character just hands a weapon over to the villain. And this cringy climax will hopefully make you squirm until the very last drop of milk hits the floor. Watch it and you'll see what I'm talking about. I think um, of all the like 90s serial killer thrillers, like this was the next solid one that came out after Seven. I watched Along Came a Spider, which was supposed to be, it was a continuation of the Alex Cross character of Morgan Freeman, and it was fine, but it definitely did not hold up to Kiss the Girls. Didn't have that creepiness. No, not at all. All right, Justin, let's revisit Summer of Sam. So I decided to go with a movie that's based on a serial killer, and if you are not into that sort of thing. This movie doesn't like necessarily heavily linger on Berkowitz's character. I mean, he certainly is a big part of the movie, but 
the majority of this movie takes an interesting aspect of a serial killer movie and it focuses on the neighborhood it also is a period piece and it focuses on this moment in time in the late 70s it covers like the punk movement in new york with cbgb studio 54 sort of the classism in the bronx and also the blackout that new york had in 77 and so it takes place all in one summer during what was dubbed the summer of sam when the city in New York was terrified because there was a man going out and shooting people with a 44 caliber gun. He seemed to be targeting mostly women, especially women with brunette hair. Women were all in the neighborhoods were getting their hair dyed blonde. People were wearing blonde wigs. Like you couldn't find a wig, a blonde wig anywhere in New York. You couldn't find blonde hair dye. The movie itself doesn't really show the whole city uh, terrified. I mean, there is a news report in the beginning, but mainly focuses on a small neighborhood with uh, some friends that are being affected by it. Mainly John Leguizamo. He's a hairdresser and he's a little bit more cultured than his friends are. Um, they're kind of like, hey, we got to find the Summer Sam guy and we got to kick his ass. Like that's sort of their attitude from the get go. They seem very racist, very homophobic. And his friend Richie comes back into town. Richie is totally different from the rest of these guys. He's played by Adrian Brody and he's got spiked hair. He's speaking in a British accent because he's been very influenced by British punk and everybody just thinks he's a total weirdo and an idiot. Don't get me wrong. If someone who wasn't British starts speaking in a British accent all the time, it, I would find them also annoying. He doesn't do it throughout the entire movie, but you just enough to like you get the idea and it does kind of annoy you a little bit but they are totally judging him hard on just by the way he looks i think spike lee's movies are hit and miss for me personally anyway um generally i think his best movies are when he's specifically the location is new york city or the bronx somewhere that he's in brooklyn somewhere he's very familiar and he really gets the uh, idiosyncratic nature of the characters and things things seem very authentic when this movie did come out it was judged heavily off of the italian stereotypes that are in the movie doesn't really make italians look great but the movie was also co-written by two italians uh, one of which the guy who played spider in goodfellas so all the blame can't be put on Spike Lee's shoulders for the writing. This movie came out in 99, a couple years after Boogie Nights, but it has a lot of that feel where, you know, we'll be on a couple characters for a while and then you see them crisscross scenes together and then we see them on their own. I, I really think you get the essence of like being in this like hot, summery 1970s moment in New York where everybody's kind of on edge. There is a lot of drugs and sex in this movie it is kind of a you know nightlife party type movie Mira Sorvino is really great she plays John Leguizamo's wife but he there's a whole kind of thing where he's into all kinds of stuff that he's not comfortable sharing with her and so there there is like a whole moment where they go to like this orgy uh 70s orgy party there this movie's <laughs> like packed with like 1970s excess Strangely, for a movie titled Summer of Sam, the Berkowitz stuff is the is where the movie is not as pleasant. Um, instead of really kind of getting into 
the psychology of this character they generally just occasionally cut to a man who's kind of like screaming in agony in his apartment and sort of like talking to himself and talking to his dog and eventually uh, we have a scene where his dog actually talks to him and the dog's mouth is moving and there's like a you know actual like human voice coming out of it some of these scenes don't really seem like they fit with this movie but again it's it's a, it's a mishmash it's i think the whole point of the movie is supposed to be like very erratic and all over the place i did enjoy it it's a very gritty and exciting film to watch it kind of does show like how culturally big of an impact that serial killers had even in the 70s and across the board that some great acting uh jennifer esposito i don't see her in too many movies i really wish i i got to find out more movies that she's in she's absolutely fantastic in this movie i love john leguizamo adrian brody is always great and they do a really good job of rounding out this ensemble cast so summer sam if you're not as into the movies about serial killers killing people this might be more for you i don't know it was nice it was nice to kind of see a a serial killer movie quote unquote that was less about the serial killer and more about the people that are getting affected by it not because there are victims not not even the ones that were killed but you know a whole neighborhood is a victim because they're terrorized to go outside and enjoy their lives because there's a maniac on the loose i remember i worked at a video store when this movie came out and i don't recall liking it at first and for the longest time i didn't want to rewatch it because of that feeling and probably like two or three years ago i finally did and was like why did i not like it this is it, it is really extreme um in a, in a lot of different ways and uh, but but its take on having a serial killer kind of in the background and the influence on um, the life around that huge monumental thing happening um it's just like a, a fresh take on on it I put this up there with some of Spike Lee's best movies. So those are our picks of the week for our Serial Killer Summer. Kiss the Girls, Summer Sam. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow. It doesn't happen too often, but when an actor chooses to have their name removed from the opening credits of a film, it's a bold move. Kevin Spacey requested it for Seven based on the thinking, if the audience knows I'm in it, and he's totally, you know, the villain who has an unforgettable demise and basically is the linchpin for the movie, then unveiling he's in the opening credits when he doesn't show up until two-thirds of the way through the movie? Well, that's a huge reveal. The only thing that could overshadow Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman spearheading a film with a juicy idea of, like, a serial killer employing the seven deadly sins is knowing who the killer is, duh. 
And sometimes it is the best idea for an actor, for whatever reason, to remove their name from the opening credits. Of course, Spacey didn't invent this idea, and our buddy Billy had done it a few times well before Seven. The first big budget film in which he did this was 1982's Tootsie, the Sidney Pollock contemporary classic which continues to top many best of lists today. For Bill, no, he wasn't a serial killer in Tootsie by far, but his name, especially in 1982, coming off of hits like Meatballs, Caddyshack, Stripes, and still riding a high from his SNL days, which ended only two years prior, Bill could make an impact on the public's inference about a film and give a preconceived idea to what a movie like Tootsie could be like with just his name being attached. His supporting role in the film is an extremely integral part to the movie, just like John Doe in Seven. For those of you who don't know, Tootsie is about a male actor who auditions for a female role in a popular, nationally televised soap opera while in drag, gets the part, then continues to live as a woman with his best friend, played by Bill, and who is the only person who knows the truth. But this pre-Ghostbusters role for Bill wasn't originally in the script. As Bill is observed about his role of Jeff, that his character helps Michael, Dustin Hoffman's character, be a better man, have more of a moral consciousness about himself while he's imitating a woman. It sounds kind of anti-feminist, but the character arc for Hoffman's cross-dressing Michael Dorsey slash Dorothy Michaels is about as feminist as you can get for the early 80s. We need Jeff in order to fully empathize with Michael. Jeff actually grounds the film. He makes it seem believable that Hoffman can even convince millions of people that he is a woman. And through Jeff, Michael learns how to treat people better, be less self-absorbed, and see life through a woman's perspective, in not a knee-slapper sort of way. And 40 years later, we really need Jeff to help an audience root for Michael. When talking about this movie, credit also needs to go to Holly Woodlawn, the legendary trans actress who coached Hoffman during filming. But getting back to Jeff, wouldn't you know it, it was an uncredited female writer named Elaine May who suggested a character like Jeff needed to be included in the film to sympathize with Michael's viewpoint. Because Jeff was not originally in the script, they needed a strong improviser, and Hoffman suggested Billy for the role, but had a lot of pushback from director Sidney Pollack. But I won't even get into the drama between those two on set. Many of the best scenes between Billy and Dustin were completely improvised, and I'm always left wanting more between these two roommate best friends. Michael's plight of realizations about his privilege as a straight male wouldn't be fully developed if it weren't for Jeff. It feels like Bill had a great outside perspective on this film. In an interview with The View, Bill spoke about how he visited the set many times when he wasn't on call and found Dustin and Pollock in a fight about something, leading him to always say, you guys are bozos. You don't even know how good this movie is. Although part of Bill thought it might just be a funny trick to play on the audience to keep his name from the credits, ultimately, insisting that his name not be included in the opening credits was really genius. Not only did the unexpected addition of Jeff completely change the course of the story, but Bill, in classic Second City improv style, thought about the production as a whole. He didn't want this to be called a Bill Murray movie because it really isn't at all. But the man was self-aware enough to put the production above his own sense of vanity. This is an interesting Murray moment for me because uh, last uh, episode you were talking about Chevy Chase and how he, uh, sort of the opposite, you mm -hmm. know, he wanted... Yeah. Everything to be about him, yeah. even if it wasn't. And so, I don't know, it's nice to see some humbleness with some of these actors that were kind of have breakout hits at the time. Uh, and I do always forget that Bill Murray's in that movie. Uh, my uh, sister-in-law, Courtney, just watched Tootsie the other day and texted me. I was like, yeah, you know, forget that he's in that movie every time. It still works as a great surprise. And it's not just one scene, like he's in the movie a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course.
Well, before we close out the first part of our serial killer summer, I had a quick thing I wanted to say about the Somerset Morgan Freeman character. Uh, There's a movie that I did for one of my picks of the week for a past episode, and that movie was called Eyewitness. And it came out, I believe, 1981, but Morgan Freeman has an early role in that movie, and he plays a detective that's so similar to a Somerset character. And he's not in the movie that that much, but you see it's like a somewhat prequel, maybe of the same universe. They're living Mm -hmm. in that same universe. So if you uh, like that sort of thing, go check out Eyewitness and follow it up with Seven and just kind of pretend that that's a younger Somerset and then he becomes the the very cynical old Somerset that we see in Seven. And then look for his like younger cousin, nephew, whatever he might be in Kiss the Girls too. Yeah. You know, just a different version of himself. You know, I do have a question for you. Do you think that Somerset retires at the end of the movie? That's a good question. I believe that he is done. I think this was the final nail for him to deal with, especially seeing his partner. Carted off in a police car. Yeah, just totally taken through the ringer. I think maybe he uses part of his retirement to, like, check in on his partner and kind of help with the, you know, funeral arrangements and all the stuff for his he probably Why, did. Yeah, he probably is yeah. going to help take care of all that and uh, probably take a much-needed break away from the craziness of the city. He better have gotten a good retirement, a generous benefit package. It out seemed of that like uh, that was still. Yeah, <laughs> seemed like that was still a time period where that something like that existed. You know, if the alternate ending to this movie would have been like one of the original endings they talked about was actually Somerset is who kills John Doe. And there, there's no part of me that thinks that that would have worked. I get why, like the idea that he's the sacrifice, you know, that Mills still has some some part of him left and he's retiring, like, you know, what's it to him? But I just, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see Somerset doing that at all, not even to sacrifice himself for Mills. Yeah, and it would have felt a little bit more of a cliche if he did it because he talks, you know, whenever there's a movie like this and someone talks about, oh, did you ever draw your gun? And they're like, oh, only once, you know, and then they draw it at the end of the movie. Yeah, that would have been It would have kind of, like, fell in line with those movies that have done that time and time again. More exciting for Mills to to shoot John Doe. And his reaction is still a choice in that. John Doe has the upper hand. John Doe has the upper hand now. That voice, just love it. Did you have any other thoughts? Did, didn't we do impressions of Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption? We might have. <laughs> There's just something wonderful pretty, about his pretty voice. Pretty bad Morgan Freeman impressions. That's what we're known for. Yeah. If we're known for anything, it's bad <laughs> Morgan Freeman impressions. Well, thank you so much for listening to the first part of our Serial Killer Summer. We've got one more episode coming up next month. We'll be doing American Psycho, which I'm very excited to do you and i have talked about doing this movie for several years and i'm glad it's finally going to happen after august we're going to move on to uh some comedies some other movies we're gonna move away from the serial killer stuff but then of course in october we're going to delve into our horror movies that we love talking about so much that we save october for just for that uh purpose 
But uh, if you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. You can find us on all the platforms. And we also have a YouTube channel that has all of our past episodes that you can listen to. And please subscribe to that channel. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.